When you're a kid, when you're a young sports fan, you love your team and you dislike every other team with a white hot intensity. Like no matter how transcendent Michael Jordan was, if you were a Knicks fan, you hated the dude because he sent your team to Cancun year after year after year. But as you grow older, you generally take a bigger picture view of your sport and its players. Somebody who annoyed you when you were 10 entrances you when you're 20. For me, that guy was Larry Bird. When the Boston Celtics were dominating the NBA circa the mid-80s, the guy drove me nuts because six times a year, I had to watch him stomp my Chicago Bulls. Plus, since pro basketball on cable wasn't really a thing, we only got to see one or two national games a week, and most of those games involved the Celtics. Now, all these years later, not only do I adore Bird's game, but I had the opportunity to interview him, and he could not have been nicer. Now, another guy who used to drive me nuts, and now I adore in part because he is way nicer than he was back in the day, Charles Barkley. Now, how did Barkley's evolution come to pass? Well, today's guest wrote the book on the Chuckster, so we are about to find out, and it'll get us all hyped to collect this. Welcome to Collect This, powered by CSG, your go-to sports card grading company. Here's your host, Alan Goldscher. So, Tim Bella, you write for the Washington Post. You've written for Esquire, The Atlantic, New York Magazine, and The Undefeated. And now you have written an amazing, amazing Charles Barkley biography called, appropriately enough, Barkley Biography. But for the first time in your career, you're going to do some voiceover work, my friend. <laughs> it's happening right now. So, uh, yeah, here we go. Hey, everyone, this, this is Tim Bella at The Washington Post. And if you'd like to win a copy of my new book, Barkley to Biography, just send an email to collect this at csgcards.com, put the subject header Barclay, and then write a couple sentences describing what you love most about Sir Charles. Uh, our panel of experts will choose their three favorite pitches, and each of those Barclay fans will get themselves a free book and not just any book too it's my book so it'll be great right uh once again write collect this at csgcards.com subject header barkley and throw in a few choice words about chuck thanks everyone all right so if this writing thing doesn't pan out I think it's panned out pretty well, but if it doesn't pan out, you have a future in voiceover, my friend. Yeah, awesome. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so before we dive in, I have a very important question for you. You found a neat little little bit uh, from the Chuckster from when he was in college listing all of his nicknames. The only ones coming into this book that I knew were Sir Charles and the Round Mountain Rebounds uh, and the Chuckster. You have found, though, that Charles also referred to himself as Check it out. The Bread Truck, The Love Boat, Food World, The Crisco Kid, The Wide Load from Leeds, which is Leeds, Alabama's hometown, Ton of Fun, and Good Time Blimp. Of those names, what's your favorite? Wide Load of Leeds, followed <laughs> by Bread Truck, just because um, uh, they're it, it just perfectly captures him at that moment in his 
early 20s, late teens. Um, uh, there was actually a story in the book about how him and his friends would uh, uh, actually steal cakes from a <laughs> local supermarket. So, so every time I hear Pred Truck, I just think of him and and you know his <laughs> his friends there. And with these, oh man, I sat around like maybe 10 p.m. each night just uh, 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 stealing cakes that were left overnight there at the local supermarket. But so many names, uh, we know him now basically as only Chuck. But yes, Sir Charles, Prime Mountain Prebound, Bread Truck, uh, everything. And if you actually go to his basketball preference page, there are uh, at least probably a couple of others that I've never heard of, to be honest. <laughs> so <laughs> it just keeps going and going. Uh, I am partial to Chris Go Kid myself. Um, okay, so Charles Barkley, we are a card company. We are a card grading company. Uh, we got to touch on that before we dive into the ins and outs of the book and writing the book and the content, which is, again, a phenomenal, very ridiculously detailed book. Um, he's an icon, right? He's not necessarily an icon amongst collectors, primarily because he came about during the junk wax era and there were just like too many Charles Barkley cards out there. But I feel like now, based on the fact that he is a beloved figure in not just sports, but um, pop culture and society in general, collectors are going to rediscover him. What's your stance on that? Yeah, I think you are spot on there. I mean, in his case, and I tried to, to uh, really just spell it out in the book, since the time he started at Auburn in the 81-82 season, he's been a public figure on television and been actively covered for about four decades now. And, mm. and for, and for anyone that's just an incredible amount of time to be a public figure, especially since his last two plus decades have been on TV each week with millions of, of people just watching him and sharing all of the previous things he says. So I do think his legend has grown even after his basketball life, thanks to what he's done on inside the NBA and revolutionizing the studio show on TNT. Um, and one other factor I find really striking uh, for him compared to some other athletes is he's kind of made it harder to get any Charles Barkley you know, merchandising or or to have his likeness actually used in any video game period he mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. has kind of pulled that off he's kind of it, it's been a choice from him and his management just to not participate in that and that's totally fine but in doing so it has upped the value of getting to, you know, any Charles Barkley merchandising period, whether it be a card, a jersey, uh, uh, any collectible period. I, I know at least in my case, I had a hard time actually finding a Christmas ornament of Chuck in his dream team jersey. It was so hard to find, but <laughs> but I hunted it down. I finally got it, and uh, it'll be back up on our tree here in about two months but yeah um uh, he, he's a really interesting case when it comes to his likeness and and how people 
<laughs> can actually get a piece of that. I think collectors need to take note of that. Um, the stuff is hard to get. Maybe the cards are a little easier to get, but if it's a good condition card and, you know, it's distinctly possible that this book makes a whole lot of noise, uh, Chuckster will have an even higher profile. So hold on to those Barkley cards. So, Tim, you are known as a hard news writer. Like I said, you write for Washington Post or WAPO, as we call it. Um, why did you shift over to, and, and I can't emphasize enough how epic this book is. It's um, 150 some odd thousand words. That's a big book, people. That's about a four, depending on the size of the font, anywhere from like 350 to 500 pages. So a lot of stuff about the Chuckster. Why did you switch over for, and, and decide for your first book to move to the sports space? Yeah, um, well, I started actually writing about sports, whether it be, be in high school to college. And right when I was starting off um, professionally, I was at ESPN for about a couple of years as a really low level uh, researcher there. Um, so it's it's always been in my blood. I grew up uh, just going to a ton of sport events, watching sport events with my dad, um, uh, first in New Jersey. And then um, when we moved to Houston in 1993. It was the, the, the first time that I really got into basketball there. Michael mm -hmm. Jordan's uh, uh, his three-peat season, plus the hometown Rockets had started to really take uh, a move toward uh, uh, NBA greatness. That season, they, they pushed Seattle to seven games in the second round, and uh, Seattle was then knocked out in the following round by uh, Charles Barkley's sons. And uh, the, the that first Bulls Sun series in '93 kind of hooked me on the league as a whole, and and then when I actually started to go to these games with my dad in '94, '95, our time mm -hmm. was great because uh, the Rockets won both those championships, and and each time they had to go through Charles Barkley and his son, so I was exposed to Chuck at a really early age. And um, my first exposure, honestly, was just booing the absolute hell out of him because <laughs> I didn't want it to be Hakeem and my guys back then. But um, I, I got this greater appreciation for his hair in life. But for me, sports was always something that uh, was important to me. You know, in college and uh, as in adults. So uh, it, it felt like a good mood just going back there and also having worked with Armin Katayan and Jeff Benedict on uh, their two books, The System and their uh, Tiger Woods biography has their lead researcher. I saw like what went into um, a sports book that, that it could resonate with, with a lot of people and how if you put in the work and you find a subject like Tiger, like major college football that a lot of people are interested in, it's going to get attention. And for me, 
I just thought that uh, if I wanted to take on a first project, it had to be something comparable to that. Now, you had a brief encounter with the Chuckster when you were, I believe, 12 about pants or something like that. Can you elaborate, please? <laughs> it was, uh, actually, two separate ones. One, oh. yeah, the one, uh, the first one, which is not in the actual book itself, I was on a flight heading to uh, Philadelphia uh, to see my and mother Tata the Jersey Shore and um, my mom uh, uh, hadn't actually carry on this rake on board. This is obviously a very pre nine eleven everything where she had me as as a on a company Meyer just carried this large object on board a plane. Uh, uh-huh. and uh, as as I'm stowing it away, I see Charles Barkley in first class, and I just kind of freak out. And so I, I asked the flight attendant, like, can I get a photo with him after we land? And and she said, yes, sure. So, but before I I did that, I had to grab this rake. So in, in the photo itself, you will see be smiling the chuck back then and there's this large rake to the side <laughs> on board an airplane and i just look at it now it's like what life is that <laughs> i don't even understand <laughs> like why they even allow that so that was the first one the second one was he was actually playing at a golf tournament in Houston, and we happened to be in the area just doing some light stalking around the uh, golf course, and we saw this bald head uh, uh, on <laughs> the green there. And at that point in time, my dad had actually named our car this red Cheap Cherokee after Charles Barkley. The Chuck Wagon, it was called. So so we approach the green, he takes his putt, he, he missed it. Uh, but then, and then he, he finally two-putted in, and he just approached him and said, hey, I know our car is named after you. Can we just get a quick photo? He's like, yeah, sure, man. And, and then he sees me. It must have been like 55 outside, and I was wearing shorts, and he just hooks me up and down. Goes, child, put on some damn pants. (laughs) We're gonna get cold. (laughs) And that, and that, to me, is like the Chuckster in a nutshell. It's like he's he's being. It not I don't want to say insulting that's a little much but like you know uh, it, a little harsher than one would expect but in a charming way and it's about something to put someone in a better position right yeah yeah no it was totally harmless but I I it, it, he gives you those moments that you just remember for the entire lifetime even if it's so brief like that and it it was very brief but um it's something i just kind of hung on to though it's amazing um okay so people don't realize oftentimes when they read a biography that you are making a commitment to in effect spending um months if not years writing about the subject editing the subject uh and ultimately promoting the subject right uh that's a lot of chuck now you did not have access to chuck 
which is understandable. Speaking as someone who has written uh, biographies, it's very difficult to get the full cooperation, if any cooperation, from your potential um, potential subject. But you had access to so, so many people, most notably to me, the people in his lives uh, from growing up in Leeds and going to Auburn. Talk about how you wrangled all these people, because it's, you know, it was during COVID, a lot of the time that you were doing your research, uh, people all over the country, people of various ages, probably people who have various degrees of knowledge of technology, so it might be hard to get them on a Zoom call or whatever. Um, talk about that, because that is, that's the hard part, man. It, it, it was very hard, and I'll tell you that... I, I tried to get Charles on board when I had not interviewed a single person for the book itself. However, him and his agent, Mark, um, I gave them this 81 page outline of exactly what the book would be mm-hmm. by chapter by chapter, everything. And, and we actually stuck to, uh, uh, stuck to about 95% of that original outline itself. But, um, mm-hmm. uh, after they said, no, uh, they respectfully said, no, um, I started interviewing people in May of 2019. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to, to leave zero doubt that that this was going to be a really really good book so in order mm-hmm. to actually do that uh, i had to go back to leeds i had to go back to auburn where it has been so long since uh he's been in those places but people knew him <laughs> before he came this public figure known as Sir Charles and Chuck, they knew him as Wade, his middle name. So, so like, mm-hmm. I, I want you to hear from some of his best friends, his girlfriend, his first, uh, his first middle school coach, his high school coach, his college coaches. Like, I want to hear from, you know, his tutors, um, <laughs> these football players who became his friends, these frat guys who would play him in his, his off time. I want you to know each and every person who had at least one interaction with Charles. I even found a Tennessee student who had ordered a bunch of pizzas before a game and had them delivered to him at courtside right before the actual game. I'm like, what was that all about? And and he said, you know, he actually loved Charles Barkley because he'd be Kentucky all the time. So like, like he, even schools that did not like him or were supposed to not like him or just gravitated toward him because if this was a guy who had a huge appetite he had his own personal fridge in his dorm room where he would <laughs> order pizza and and get fried chicken and it got to a point where the uh the Auburn doctor, the uh, team doctor for the athletic staff, 
actually measured his body fat actually coming into Auburn, and it it was something like 17 or 18 percent, which is the average body fat for an incoming freshman who is not a student athlete. <laughs> so, like, he was. I was just fascinated with. Anyone and everyone who had some kind of interaction with Charles from the time he was born to right now, because being you know a subway pitch man, Capital One pitch man, still on inside the NBA, still doing March Madness, I wanted the most comprehensive look at it. So if that, that was my approach, and and. Hopefully I got it, <laughs> Alan. <laughs> I hope I did. No, you you did. It's it's as I said before we went on air, it's legitimately an epic book. Um not just because of its length. Uh but don't let that length uh, and detail f- kind of scare you off. It's eminently readable. There are uh, a lot of biographies that are very academic. This is not academic. Uh, it's funny. You put yourself in the book every so often. I dig that. Um, a typical line, uh, one of them, and this legit made me LOL. He was five foot nothing, dribble heavy point guard, a black hole of a player who would jack up shots from midcourt if given the chance. I love that line. Uh, and what that demonstrates is he was not a prodigy right it took him a minute to become legitly a legitimately good player it did and you know he has admitted this no one would have wanted him if he did not have this growth spurt that that happened over the course of two summers where he went from you know five seven to um at least uh, six four. I, I know his height is always uh, a topic of conversation. He he insists himself <laughs> as being six six. Others say he's more like six four and a half. But um, yeah. If not for that growth spurt of at least nine or ten inches, he he knows he would not be a prospect. That is something that um, he did not take for granted at all because um each summer he would he would perk on his jumping and and he he's talked about it several times but he would jump over this fence that was outside of his grandmother's place in uh the projects of leeds just jumping over that fence constantly for hours on end and and his grandmother would watch him outside to make sure that you know he didn't hurt himself quite honestly because i i you know one one inch and uh, i know that's a hospital <laughs> right there in a place that yeah anyway though yeah he he worked on it worked on it worked on it to the point that his coaches saw that that he could dunk in, I know, early high school, and and it got to the point where it was going to be impossible to keep him off the floor because he had improved so much just by going to this basketball court that was not far away from his mother's place and just dribbling that basketball all day, all night, uh, to the point that you know he would 
play when it was late at night and the neighbors would would talk to Charcy, his mother, and there'd be like, why is he out there so, so late? We're trying to sleep. And she's like, well, well, he's not getting into trouble. So, uh, <laughs> but that, that's an important part of the story, though. He had this backing from, from his mother and his grandmother at a time when his father was just not in the picture. He needed them and their support to keep going in basketball and staying out of trouble at a time when it was not easy to stay out of trouble in Leeds. Let's talk about his game, his actual game. Uh, uh, There is not a comp. I think in NBA history, there is not anyone like him. As you said, six, four and a half, maybe uh, power forward, legitimate rebounding prodigy. He may not have been a prodigy uh, with an overall game, but like his sense uh, of the court, court awareness and his ability to gauge where the ball was going. Kind of like that Dennis Rodman thing where he knew the angles and he knew and he loved rebounding. He loved rebounding. Um, what else was it that made him transcendent? I guess forget the personality stuff. Forget that because we all we know and love Chuck. We know and love the the 2022 version of Chuck. We didn't necessarily love the you know 2002 version of Chuck, which we'll get to in a little bit. But what is it about his game that made us want to know him? He when he put run down the floor in Philadelphia at his first or second year. He he would just grab rebound and take it coast to coast and not only would he finish it with a dunk Allen, he, he finished it with a dunk that looked like honestly the incredible hulk on a <laughs> swing set like he would he would come down with such force and such anger and then after he scored he put swing on it like he he was having just the absolute best time in mm-hmm. the world. He pointed to give folks a reminder of this is what awaits you if you get in my way. And I, th- I think he kind <laughs> of he kind of did that each and every game. He tried to at least, and a big part of that was due to his relationship. With Moses Malone, who told him at the time, you are too fat, you are too lazy, you are never going to be a starter unless you do something about it. And once he listened to Moses, who kind of became his father figure for him at a time where he admittedly was playing through a lot of anger tissues surrounding his biological father, Frank Barkley. Charles was able to just kind of harness that into getting into better shape and just playing the best basketball of his life at that point in time in Philadelphia. If not for for that guidance, you know, we would still have these 
incredible moments, but um, they were able to harness him and, and harness everything he had inside of him into something special that resulted in these highlight dunks, these big blocks, uh, these pre-bounds, over seven foot dudes whom you put not expecting to actually beat but he did it every single night for those first eight years in philly and he he became undeniable at that point in time and we just wanted more of him even if he did not have the team success there uh now on court success, we know he he didn't win a ring, and he's kind of one of those guys, and it bums me out that when you talk about great athletes who haven't won a ring, and you know Carl Malone, Dan Marino, but Chucksters always at the top of the list. Um, and I, I, nonetheless, forgetting the fact that he didn't win a ring, and forgetting the fact that he did some not so good stuff during his career. Uh, there's the spitting incident. There are the arrests. There's the gambling, which was later on. There was the the drinking. Uh, talk a little bit about his bumps and bruises along the way. Yeah, I mean, first bump. You mentioned it up front. I do think. Um, well, before that, I would say him not actually graduating from high school to itself kind of put him on this path of um i wouldn't say anger but but he was someone who who had a very large chip on his shoulder and sometimes um just got the best of him um and it really did uh Pubble up that night in New Jersey when when he spit on a fan. He <laughs> attempted to actually spit on an older white man who had actually said uh, the N word to him. But but um, instead he ended up spitting on this eight-year-old girl who was uh, sitting there who was not involved at all and. He it, it was really at that point in time the worst night of his life right there, mm. and and he heard it. it. It got nationwide attention everywhere, really questioning um, who Charles Barkley was at that point in time, who if the NBA was because the NBA was on an upward swing. Of, post magic and bird and you see one of his star attractions spitting on a child um it, it was a huge blow to him it was a huge blow to the, the sixers and it could have been a very big one to the nba itself and to his credit he he went home that night and if, if, looked himself in the mirror and he knew a lot of this was stemming from the anger he felt towards not just his father, but also the uh, Spanish teacher he had in high school who had failed him, who was he's partially uh, uh, to blame for him not walking at graduation with his friends, his classmates. And he yeah. he held on to that for so long and and he played upset 
and just angry at the whole world. And once the spinning incident happened, it really did change him, I do think. And and he really decided to let a lot of that go because uh, he had not then. And as a result, it ended up as this horrible blemish for him that stuck with him for a long, long time until he got to Phoenix, honestly. Until his MVP season, the Aspidian incident was probably the first thing you brought up. Yeah, and not only that, but the duality, okay, the duality of Charles Barkley. You, you hear about the spinning incident, you see the maniacal on court uh, uh, persona, uh, but then you see him on inside the NBA and he's funny and silly and goofy. But the one thing that, you know, Barkley aficionados do know is he's a very generous person. Uh, talk about some of this crazy, you know, buying the entire restaurant dinner sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It is something that uh, was kind of instilled in him at a young age from his mother, Ed, his grandmother, this idea of always giving back. And um, he did not come for, for much in Leeds, but he was he always had enough. And in his mind, if he had enough everyone else should get equal or more and ever since then he's made these donations to hbcus and women's organizations and and his high school back at back in leeds just tolling millions and millions of dollars um um he's given to uh relief efforts involving wildfires and floods and hurricanes and uh he's usually pretty hokey about it i know uh when he was in philadelphia he he would uh buy these christmas presents for uh uh churches and uh, a children's hospital there and he would always tell the uh, person in charge of it do not tell any journalists I am doing this I just want to do it and please leave it at that it's only been in recent years he's made it more to more public and sometimes he does it in a joking way that also offends people like when he said he was actually going to donate um uh, a fair amount of money to uh black women in tech to start up these businesses he said right on inside um this doesn't mean you'd open a hair salon now or or a nail's place now and you know what he did that and he did offend some people he still gave that money he but he did it in his own way though and uh uh during the course of this book the the line i heard over and over from hundreds of people is well that's Chuck being Chuck. That's Charles being Charles. Just <laughs> have come to accept him as kind of this 
wild card uncle figure who will say and do things that are a bit outrageous, offensive, sometimes wrong, but you you know his heart is there and, and that he he doesn't mean harm and he does mean good. So you accept it and move on. And that was kind of a common theme from everyone I spoke to pretty much. Yeah. When I was, I was living in Philly while he was at the end of his tenure uh, with the Sixers. And, you know, even after during the spitting incident, the, the city still loved him because it was known around the city how generous he was. You know, might not get written about, but people heard things. Philly's a small city. And yeah, hear stuff. Transitioning to inside. I remember uh, many, many, many years ago, Bill Simmons wrote an article uh, about his day or two at Inside the NBA. And, you know, I would have been a fan at that point. I'm sure you were too. How can you not be a fan? If you're a basketball aficionado, Inside is the best. It's like, it's appointment viewing. Um, it still is too. Like, he, it still is. Even with Shaq and everything, Shaq has he actually improved things, but um, it. Oh, so, but I mean, he's Shaq, Shaq as a broadcaster has improved so much. Like when he first started, when he first joined the team, I know I was resistant. I was like, what are you putting him for? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it, he became his, he's just, he's just better. He's not just like making sound effects. He's actually offering up really good analysis. Yeah, I know. And, and just as an aside, when he went to Turner, he kind of had this idea in his head about, what the ESPN folks wanted him to be, so he carried that over. And if he were here to go to ESPN, um, he told me that that uh, they basically wanted Shaq to, to be Charles Barkley, and and mm. that's kind of what he tried to do when he first got to Turner. And if not for the executives uh, and uh, the director, should just actually telling him, hey, just be you. We already got Charles. And I just kind of unlocked a different level of Shaq that I don't mm -hmm. think he even knew he had, honestly. And it, it's been so it, it's been so great just seeing that version of the show. Uh, especially this past season, I, I feel like they kind of brought it back up to a level of quality there and uh it, it still is appointment viewing to this day there's no doubt more so than ever uh due to the societal stuff but uh going back to the simmons article uh boy did that make me want to go get a job there uh or even just hang out for a couple days uh is that something that oh my god you would have loved to do a and uh b is everything at inside as idyllic as it seems when we watch yeah i mean i, I mean i tried to get into inside and i'll be honest they were were hesitant will stand offish at times Ernie johnson was incredibly respectful and, and nice in in a couple of his 
emails to me saying, I know I can't talk, but, but it has a whole, I would have loved that experience. And I was hoping to actually get some of that experience in person, um, right before the actual pandemic hit, because I, I know mm-hmm. sometimes they broadcast in, uh, uh, outside of these uh, stadiums um, uh, for these big games. So I was hoping to, to actually do that, but uh, COVID hit and kind of put things to a halt. But that's a whole though. Um, inside, it, it, they really do treat it like a family, a, a real, real pork family. Like, even when I saw them at, at the Hall of Fame induction last year, 2021, um, when inside the NBA was actually honored there, and Charles was inducted for a third time uh, as a player, a dream team member, and as a broadcaster. He was hooking forward for Mr. Tim Kiley, who has run that show for extended period of time. And, and he told bouncers, <laughs> this guy makes me look so good on TV. You have to put him <laughs> into this club. He's, he's my Turner family. So like, it, it's no BS when he says that, it's a family there that they treat him extremely well, uh, both in terms of his compensation and his schedule, because uh, for, uh, for the most part, he only works once a week, right up until March Madness, and uh, it kind of intensifies there. But it, it is really, really good. Um, Ernie, Kenny, Shaq, Charles, the that's a once in a generation team there. And I do think that uh, we should not take for granted what we have seen on TV with Charles for the last two plus decades and this current version of inside push Shaq for over a decade now, because we're never going to see it again, probably. Before I let you go um, and take care of your seven month old who uh, you're on daddy to tell right now. I really, really I am. It's and it's hard. Listen, speaking of someone sleeping though. Oh, good. But speaking of someone who has been on daddy to tell and had to do, you know, stuff uh, during daddy to tell, I know how hard it is to carve out that 30, 40, 50 minutes. And I really appreciate it. Um, so before you go and, and get back on daddy duty, uh, what do you think is going to happen with Charles Barkley? In the, give me a bold prediction. What are we going to see from him? Uh, based on your research, based on what you've been hearing on the streets, what's next for Charles beyond inside and beyond bad golf? <laughs> His golf game is getting better. Incrementally, uh, yes. Thankfully, to swing is getting better. And and uh, just... Um, speaking of golf, too, uh, 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 he was really toying with uh, uh, LIB golf there for a minute, but um, if, uh, if that did not come up, the uh, Saudi-based uh, uh, golf league. Yeah. Um, but if that did come up again, and if the offer was uh, $20 million, 
a year or or like 40 million a year he'd probably he would strongly take that i think but it never came up so thankfully but yeah. in terms of <laughs> um um his future i i do know for years he said when i hit 65 i'm gonna finally step away mm. well well it's coming up on that now and he's kind of indicated that um uh, when he's around 66 or so he is finally going to step away he did something similar for uh his last like six years in the nba where he'll please tease retirement but he didn't actually do it until he he had a huge injury um in houston so (laughs) but i do think now that that he will probably step away and and he will keep his word in these next couple years to step away from broadcasting unless he gets a godfather offer uh to to one cut down on his schedule to two to actually get paid even more than he already does <laughs> right now but but if he is at that age now i know he's got his first grandson in henry and uh it really is uh something in which he does want to spend more time with with his wife his daughter his grandson and enjoy what he likes to do if that's golf and fish and he'll still talk shit probably but um (laughs) on air somewhere but um i do think he is going to keep his word and step away within the next couple years and when that happens it'll be a sad day uh, as I noted, this book is a large, large behemoth of a book. Uh, but so, what are you working on next? What's your next large behemoth of a project? <laughs> <laughs> well, I gotta, uh, I'm gonna take a little bit of time and sh- just kind of breathe, Alan, because uh, honestly, this was really a sprint to get this done. It mm-hmm. was um, even in a pandemic where uh, people's schedules became really open starting in March of 2020. I told my spouse, I'm, I'm like, you have to understand I've got Coach K for a half hour, and it's March. Like, <laughs> like understand how rare yeah. and how strange this whole time is. So I'm just going to take some time, take a breather. I'll be back at work at the post here in about two months. Uh, if there are some ideas for next book, it will probably be uh, outside of sports, whether it be um, a musician actor something like that but um most definitely a big public figure who can command my attention span for as long as charles did because that's that was one thing i really enjoyed about this whole 
whole deal here is that it was so interesting the entire yeah. time. It was so captivating the entire time. And whatever I do next, I wanted it to be as interesting as Charles was. Tim Bella, author of Barkley, a biography available now at a bookstore, either of the brick and mortar variety or of the online variety near you. Uh, lots of great stuff about his on-court stuff. Lots of great stuff about his inside stuff and lots of great stuff about his appearances on Saturday Night Live. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Alan. Appreciate it again. Whether it's a 1986 Michael Jordan Fleer rookie card, a Tom Brady playoff contenders rookie card from 2000, or, I don't know, a Marv Throneberry card that came out of a post cereal box in 1963, and yes, that's a thing, Certified Sports Guarantee will grade your sports cards quickly and accurately. A subsidiary of Certified Collectibles Group, CSG graded over 1 million cards in its first year plus on the sports collecting scene, the fastest any grading company has hit that mark. The speedy turnaround times provided by the knowledgeable, passionate team of expert sports card graders will make your CSG experience smooth, efficient, and most importantly, fair. Regardless of the athlete, the sport, or the condition of your card, CSG will treat it with the love and respect it deserves. For more information about CSG, visit csgcards.com. That's CSG, your go-to sports card grading company. We hope you enjoyed Collect This, powered by CSG. Collect This was hosted, written, produced, engineered, and scored by Alan Goldscher. If you have any comments or questions, please email us at collectthis at csgcards.com. 